being a Christian in a fallen world isn't always the easiest thing to do, and it will rarely help you fit in with non-believers and people of different faiths. But it is important that we do what God has called all Christians to do, fit in. So if that means hiding your faith and lying about your beliefs, then that is exactly what you should do. God wants all Christians to be really popular in their group of friends, and it is so much harder to be popular if people know you go to church and read the Bible. So feel free to get creative when you explain to others what your life is all about. It doesn't matter what you tell them, just as long as you fit in and nobody thinks you're a religious freak. Because there is no higher calling for a Christian than fitting in. These have been Deep Thoughts from a Shallow Christian. So if you have a heartbeat this morning, you've no doubt experienced a time in your life uh, where you've maybe been fearful about fitting in. I think we can all uh, relate to that. Uh, So here's the deal. It's Labor Day. That means everyone leaves. And so here I am. um, And I know that I've been here for like a couple months now, and you don't know me very well. And uh, the last four weeks, uh, hopefully you know that we've been talking about biblical community and we've been talking about the importance of relationships and being open and honest. And so in that spirit of open and honesty and transparency and vulnerability, I want to tell you something this morning. Um, I'm going to put a picture, not yet, but in just a second, up on the screens. And it's maybe going to be a little weird for you. Maybe it'll make you uh, squirm a little bit in your seat. It might be a little uncomfortable. But again, in the spirit of openness, honesty, and transparency, I just want to show you something that I am a little bit afraid of, okay? You guys think you can handle that? All right, here we go. Let's see this picture up on the screen. Is that scary or what? Yeah. Uh, A couple years ago, as you know, um, clowns were actually something that you did need to be afraid of. Um, it's, I'm sure that you know this, all right? Um, I know that you all are, have studied the scientific reasons, but the, the scientific name for fear of clowns is called calrophobia. You knew that, right? Uh, you're a smart crowd. That's, Pastor Brad told me that I was going to be working with an intellectual crowd. Um, calrophobia is the scientific name for the fear of clowns. And did you know that there are a ton, there, there's basically a fear for everything out there. I want to show you a few that I ran across this week. Um, Ablutophobia. That is the fear of cleaning yourself. As a student pastor, I'm convinced that most middle school boys have this fear. (laughs) We also have oikophobia, and that is the fear of being touched by one of your appliances. Yeah. And then uh, finally, arachibutrophobia say that one five times fast, is the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Like I said, there's literally a fear for everything. And so I told you um, that I was a little bit embarrassed um, to to be afraid of clowns, but the reality is you might not know me very well, but you probably don't know the people sitting next to you very well either. So what I'm going to have you do is turn to your neighbor and tell them a fear that you have that you might be just a little bit embarrassed by, but it's a legit fear that you have. So go ahead, turn to your neighbor, and tell them a fear that you have out loud with words, go. All right, so I heard some laughing. Hopefully you were laughing at yourself and not your neighbor who just confided in you one of their (laughs) deepest, darkest fears. That would be so rude. Uh, The great theologian, Jerry Seinfeld, 
has a quote, and he says this, the number one fear of Americans is public speaking. Second is death. So what that means is at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than giving a eulogy. <laughs> now, all kidding aside, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, uh, the, the reason that we oftentimes have fear is it, it, it's a fuel for us to lack in our faith. Fear is a little bit of lacking in faith. And so what I want to do this morning is help us answer this question, how do we walk by faith in a fear-filled world? There's fear and opportunities to fear all around us. So if you have a copy of scripture, uh, open it or, or turn it on to Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Um, and as you're turning there to Daniel chapter 3, uh, no doubt some of you who have been in church for a while, you are recognizing this passage already. You're like, yeah, I've heard this before. I know this passage. Um, I've seen it on Veggie Tales 37 different times with my kids. Okay, but here's what I want to challenge you to do this morning is to look at it with a set of fresh eyes. And the reason why is this is because the, the setting and the circumstances that are taking place in Daniel chapter 3 are actually not that far off from what's going on in our own life and in our own political climate today. You see, the, the setting that we're in is a setting of political unrest in Daniel chapter 3. And for us, do we not have a, a little bit of political unrest? I mean, just look back at November. All the questions about what will happen if Donald Trump actually gets elected. Or on the other side, what would happen if Donald Trump doesn't get elected? What if we build a wall? What are people going to think of us? What if we don't build a wall? Will we actually be safe? See, we're living in the midst of these fearful circumstances and in a political climate that causes fear within our lives. And so very similarly to what's happening here in Daniel chapter 3, what we have to do if we're walking by faith and choosing not to be filled with fear, we have to ask ourselves this, what makes our lives distinct from the world as followers of Christ. Like, if, if we're following Christ and we're filled with faith, then shouldn't it look a little bit different? Because I'm not talking about externally what you wear, what movies you do or don't go to, but what makes us different at a heart level, at an internal level? And what does it look like practically to live by faith in a fear-filled world? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read Daniel chapter 3. Uh, verses 8 through 18, so you can follow along with me. And it says this, But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requir requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments. Verse 11, that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you've put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? Verse 15, I will give you one more chance 
to bow down and to worship the statue that I have made. And when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, but if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into a blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He'll rescue us from your power, your majesty. Verse 18, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. Now, I know that I just dropped you into the middle of a story, and so if you have no idea what's going on, we're going to take just a quick step back and we're going to look at some of the context. So in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the very first verse of this book, it says this. It's going to be up here on the screens. It says, During the year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So what you need to know about that is King Nebuchadnezzar is a king over a province called Babylon, and he went to Judah, which is in Jerusalem, and he took people out of it. Look at verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And so not only did he besiege Jerusalem, but he went and he actually took the best and the brightest from Jerusalem and he brought them to Babylon to live and to work under his reign and his rule and his religion. And so what you have to understand is that the setting that we find these guys in is that they're working for a king who it's not really the king that they want to be working for. This is not their home. They're not with their families. And so they're, they're, they're miles and miles away. And so the king takes Daniel and his friends captive, and that's kind of the setting that we're in, all right? Now, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, who this book is written after, interprets a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream is of a statue, and the statue has, uh, you know, it's, it's a person, okay? And so the statue is made out of a head of gold, arms of silver, thighs of bronze, and legs of iron. And it represents different reigns and rules of different kingdoms uh, historically. And obviously this was before all these kingdoms came into existence. But you now, with, uh, you know, being several thousand years later, can look back and history is consistent with this. But King Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. And that was Babylon. Babylon was represented by the head of gold. Somewhere between chapter 2 and chapter 3, this king named Nebuchadnezzar becomes discontent with being just a head of gold in a dream. And he decides, let's make this statue an entire statue of gold, 90 feet in, in height, and make people worship it in my image. And that's, that's kind of where we are. And then on top of it, not only is he say, hey, here's a new statue for you to worship, but I'm going to make you worship it. How? Verse 11, he sets a decree in motion that says, if you don't bow down when the instruments sound, you're getting thrown into a fire. All right, so talk about fearful setting and fearful circumstances and political unrest. All right, we can all relate to this. But what I want you to see here is the first, the first kind of principle that I want to draw out of this text is that a life of faith will be marked with conflict. Look at verses 13 and 14 again with me. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? 
So who are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, really? Well, we know from, from chapter 1 that they came over with Daniel. And, and we also know that verse 12 tells us that they're Jews, all right? So they're not native to the province of Babylon. They're Jews. They're working there and living under King Nebuchadnezzar's reign and rule, but they're, they're away from home. All right, we also know here um, in verse uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 49, going to be up here on the screens, it says this, at Daniel's request, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted to be in charge of all of the affairs of the province of Babylon. So why do I tell you that? Because they were recently just promoted. They were put in charge of the entire province of Babylon, which might explain the rage that we see from King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, can you imagine it? He just promoted these guys, and now they're not following his instructions. They're not following his decree. And so that just infuriates him. That fills him with rage. Now, some, some people like me, you might be wondering, where's Daniel? Like, all we've been learning about, if you read the book of Daniel, chapter 1, chapter 2, it's all about him, and then on beyond that, where is Daniel right now? Did he bow down? Is that why he's not in trouble? Well, because of Daniel 2.49, we know that he was recently also promoted, and so many scholars think that uh, his work had perhaps taken him out of the region, and so he wasn't present, or he was at least in the king's court, and perhaps the, the bowing down didn't need to take place in the king's court so that you could continue to attend to your affairs. But we can, we can kind of decide and infer that Daniel's integrity wasn't compromised. Because if you skip ahead to Daniel 6, probably the most famous story in the entire book of Daniel, Daniel faces death in a lion's den, and he doesn't give in. All right, And so that's, that's what's going on with Daniel. But we see that right here, these guys, they're living a life of faith in a politically tumultuous climate, and they are facing a conflict. And in verse 13 and 14, the conflict is what? It's between them and King Nebuchadnezzar. It's an interpersonal conflict. And if I were to ask you this morning to think of a type of conflict, you would most likely think of a conflict in your marriage, a conflict within your job, a conflict within your family, all right? An interpersonal, an external, on-the-outside conflict. And that's what happened on verse 13 and 14, that's the type of conflict that we see. But look at what happens in verse 11. The decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. So before they experienced an external conflict, what did they experience? An internal conflict. A conflict where the cultural standard that was just issued didn't line up with their values. And in verse 11 is when they had to make that decision. So long before they experienced an external or interpersonal conflict, they experienced an internal challenge where they had to come to grips and decide, what really are we going to do? Most of us are not in a verse 13 or 14 type of conflict where we're standing before a king. I mean, the closest any of us have ever gotten to being thrown into a furnace is blowing our eyebrows off trying to light the grill. Am I right? But verse 11 we have all been in that situation where our values and our core convictions are challenged by culture. And we have to come up with a decision of what we're going to do. I mean, you could be at work and, and your coworkers could be cheating their time card. And you have to decide, what am I going to do with that? Or maybe the, the boundaries that you and your spouse have set up with how you're going to interact with the opposite sex, other people think is just really rigid. Or, or perhaps you have to come to grips with the fact that your classmates have discovered a way to score an easy A on a test 
but it's just a little bit sketchy, and you have to decide if you're going to take in that action or not. You see, we've all experienced a time where we have to come to grips with our internal (coughs) core convictions, excuse me, core convictions and core values and decide how are we going to handle this in the face of that conflict. And that's the situation that we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in here in Daniel chapter 3. The question, quite literally, that they have to answer is, do we want to live or do we want to be faithful? The deeper question is they have to answer, what satisfies my heart more, living or remaining faithful to what God has commanded? See, Jesus reminds us in John 16, he says, here on this earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. When we face an internal conflict, the temptation for us is to try to engineer or manipulate the outcome and ask, what do I want the outcome to be? But you see, that's the wrong question to ask. The, the real question that we need to be asking in situations like this is, how do I honor God in this situation? What does it look like for me as a person of faith to, to honor God in this situation? So remind yourself that not only were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing death, They were also exiled and away from their family. They were placed in a position of authority, so their new uh, position within the kingdom may be required obedience. And on top of that, let's be honest, life has not been super fair to these guys to this point so far. Away from their family in a whole other country under a king who's a pagan and all these things. And here's the thing. These men could have probably justified their disobedience, right? Like they could have said something like, listen, we'll bow down but we won't really mean it. Or they could have said, you know, the, the position that we just got promoted into, we, we should probably obey. That might make the king kind of mad if we don't. Or they could have said, where's God anyway in all of this? Like, why are we still serving that guy? He took us out of Judah. Now we're in Babylon, and it's been better for us here. When we do what the king asks, we get promoted. But they didn't do that, did they? Given those circumstances, Ask yourself honestly, would you have bowed down? I mean, we like to think, yeah, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have bowed down. But ask yourself honestly, would you, would you have bowed down? And I think a common way that we justify our own disobedience is to say, well, God knows my heart. The problem with that logic is this. If, if my life is simply an overflow of my heart, then the greatest indicator of what's in my heart is my life. And so how you live your life and the decisions you make uh, is going to be an indicator of what's going on internally. So what does this mean for us today, 2017, practically as followers of Christ? It means that it's our job in the face of political unrest, in the face of fear, to live a life in a way that's countercultural, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But before your faith is externally challenged and tested, your internal values will also be challenged. And so we've experienced, all, all of us have experienced internal conflict where our core convictions are put to the test. When you come to that point, here's what you have to realize is that a life of faith obeys before the outcome is realized. A life of faith obeys before the outcome is realized. Take a look back at verse 16 with me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, then the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your, from your uh, power, your majesty. Verse 18, if you have a pen, underline this right here. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Do you see what happens here in verse 18? They give up control. They don't know what's going to happen, but they determine that they're going to live a life of faith, and that's more important than potentially living. You see, it's our natural human tendency to try to engineer the outcome, to try to manipulate what's going to happen so that we know how, how, what the outcome is going to be. And we think if we don't, that it's irresponsible at best and scary at worst. Let's be honest. We all have a hard time not engineering outcomes. But what we see from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the fact that they gave up control. You know, this week um, we sent, we have a one-year-old, his name's Hudson, we sent him to preschool this week for the first time. Now, as you can imagine, if you're a parent and you've been there before, there's all kinds of fear that sets in, right? And, and we had to ask questions like, what if he doesn't get along with the other kids? What if he doesn't share? What if he steals other kids' toys or snacks? What if he doesn't behave? What if he doesn't do very well? What if he's cranky and all these what ifs? And so we're sitting back at home and we're trying to figure out what can we do to make this the best possible outcome. But what you have to understand is at some point, eventually, we just had to throw up our hands and give up control and say it's going to be okay. And we had to send him. You know, maybe for some of you, you're sending a kid off to college for the first time. And you know the fear, and you don't know what that's going to look like and what the outcome is going to be. Or for others of you, perhaps you're wrestling with putting your parents in a nursing home, and you don't know what that outcome is going to look like. Or, you know, for others, you're, you're contemplating a job change or a career shift, and you don't know what that outcome is going to look like, if you can make it financially. But here's the deal. A life of faith obeys before the outcome is realized. Hebrews 11.1 1 reminds us this, faith that shows the reality of what we hope for is the evidence of things that we cannot see. Now, what's not seen here in Daniel 3.18? The outcome. They don't know whether God is going to save them or not, but they're obeying nonetheless. Hebrews 11.6 says, it's impossible to please God without faith. So it's our responsibility to please the Lord in the midst of fearful circumstances by living a life of faith. These men, they're not serving the Lord because they know he's going to rescue him. They know he's going to rescue them. They know it's possible, but that's not why they're serving him. It's, they're not saying something like, we will obey God if he rewards us for obeying him. No. You know, and I've heard a lot of people uh, make promises to God so that they can persuade God to change their health or to change their circumstances. But that's not really believing, right? That's bargaining with God uh, to try and get the outcome. The reality is this. True faith confesses the Lord and obeys him regardless of consequences. So let's make this practical. What is it on a daily basis that stops us short from living out of biblical faith? What is it that keeps us from living out of biblical faith? It's fear, right? And, and fear at its root is actually not having full confidence or faith in God and his character. 
Fear is actually a subtle form of unbelief. Now, faith, on the other hand, faith isn't just wishful thinking and just hoping that things are going to happen. Faith is this. Faith is obeying God based on our confidence in the character of God. And that's exactly what we see modeled for us here in Daniel 3. See, it's our job to obey God and to leave the rest of the results in his hands, to give up control. So how on a, on a daily basis, on a practical level, tomorrow morning when you wake up, what can this look like in your life? Uh, how can we win this battle against fear? The first thing that I want to kind of throw out there is this. Number one, renew my mind around the character of God. You see, the intensity of our faith isn't what sustains us. Like, how hard we believe in something. I could believe that the, the moon is made out of green cheese. But the reality is, no matter how hard I want to believe that, the truth is, the moon isn't made out of green cheese. And so what we need to do is we need to renew our mind around the character of God. So I'm going to run through some different attributes of God here, uh, and we're going to hit them quick. And so if you want to go back and look at them, I would encourage you to look on the YouVersion Bible app, because uh, they'll be there longer than I'm going to probably spend on them. But here are some of the characteristics of God that are important for us to continue to renew our mind around. The first one is this. God is a personal God. Philippians 4.19 reminds us this, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. God is a personal God. He cares. He cares about your fearful circumstances. It's our tendency to, to believe the lie that God doesn't really care, all right? And he's not a personal God. He is. God is a sovereign God. God is completely in control. Colossians 1, 17, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. God is in control. And again, our fear is to believe that he's not in control, and it's up to us to produce the outcome that we want, but God is completely in control, both in your life and in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's life in Daniel 3. Also, remind yourself, God is faithful. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says this, Because of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is a faithful God. And finally, remind yourself that God is for us. Romans 8, 28 says this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, this doesn't mean that God is going to produce in your life favorable circumstances, but what he will produce and what he is for is for your spiritual benefit. So we should renew our minds around these truths, that who God is, and that's what the object of our faith should be in, in the character of God. And when we face those fearful circumstances, remind ourselves and have these verses hidden in our heart so that we might not sin against him when we face what fear might do in our lives. That's one of the reasons, you know, that we as a church challenge you to memorize a monthly scripture verse so that you are continually reminding yourself on who God is and what he's done in our lives. So another truth, another practical way to win this battle against fear is to remember this, grow in your love for God. 1 John 4.18 says, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. When we 
love the Lord, it will expel that fear. We see back in the text in verse 18 that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to put a stake in the ground and say, even if God doesn't save us, we're not bowing down. But long before that, or long before verses 13 and 14, where they had an interpersonal external conflict, they had that internal conflict that they had to come to grips to in verse 11 and say, because of this cultural standard that was just laid down that directly opposes my values, that's when they had to make that decision. And the same is true for us. It's not our job to respond on the spot and hope that we make the right decision, but really what it is is it needs to be an overflow of our intimate relationship with Jesus. Can we all agree that faith is not deepened in a moment? It's built over a lifetime. And so if you're married and your spouse gets diagnosed with a terminal illness, it's, that's not the time to make the decision whether or not you're going to tough it out. That, that love has been built up over years and experiences, and, and your love for each other is running deeper than that, and you've grown in your intimacy with it. And see, the thing is, we like to look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, I would definitely not bow down. But here's the thing, you have to ask yourself, what are you doing right now, today, tomorrow, to deepen your relationship with Christ so that your faith will be built up in that way? It's not about the the moments or the game or or the opportunity to step into the fire or not. It's about whether or not your relationship with Christ runs deep. Final thing, the final practical step that I want to challenge you with this morning is simply this. Live with an eternal perspective. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter reminds us, he says this, Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were literally foreigners in the province of Babylon. That's not where they grew up. That's not where they're from. But for us, in our context, we need to remind ourselves that this world is not our home. And this is not where we need to build up our temporary residence. We need to build up our residence in an eternal kingdom. And so when Peter says, keep away from these worldly desires, in other translations, he uses the word abstain. Why does he use these words? Because it wages war against our souls. That's where that fear starts to creep in. Because we, we start to put our hope here as opposed to beyond here. And we start to treat this world as if it's our residence, even though it's just temporary. What happens here matters, okay, but eternally, that's where we're, we're putting our investment in. So we need to live with an eternal perspective. And just remember, this world's not our home. I, I want to tell you about a story of a girl. Um, we were in youth ministry together when we were both in middle school, all right? And so For some of you, that was a long time ago. For others, it's a lot closer. Um, But her name was Ashley. And she showed me and, and honestly everyone else in our church what it was like to live by faith in the midst of a fear-filled world and in the face of fear-filled consequences. We were on a thing in our church. We had a middle school student leadership team. And so we met like once a month or, or twice a month or something like that on Sunday morning to get together and to plan, and then we were also kind of poured into and built up um, in our own faith. And one of the things that our youth pastor consistently challenged us with was to share our faith with our lost friends and to invite them to church. And so 
you know, I'm like, okay, I hear that, whatever, and then you know how it goes, like, school gets busy, I don't wind up doing it, I never really had any intentions to do it, um, but the, the next Wednesday after that, that meeting, one of her friends showed up, and that wasn't totally uncommon, like, we, we were in a pretty big-sized youth ministry, and so uh, students would bring friends all the time. Well, then, the next week, she had, like, three friends with her, and, and the friends that she was sharing her faith with uh, and that were coming to Christ were then inviting other friends, and then they were inviting other friends and other friends. And so one week, literally, her mom showed up hours before church even started and picked up our church's 15-passenger van to go pick up Ashley and all her friends. And then a few weeks later, uh, we were using two 15-passenger vans to go pick up all of Ashley's friends and students from Memorial Park Middle School. And I kid you not, by the end of the year, we were renting a school bus to pick up Ashley's friends to be able to come to church, all because this girl chose to live by faith in a fear-filled world. And you know what the excuses could be. I don't want to share my faith with my friends. It could be weird. They might disown me. They might not want to be my friends anymore, all right? But what she decided was that doesn't matter, all right? This is my temporary residence, and she literally transformed her middle school from the inside out because she chose to live by faith in a fear-filled world. And like I said, listen, I know that junior high might have been a long time uh, in the rear view for many of you, but here's the reality. This morning, the Holy Spirit might be nudging you to do something that you've been putting off. And there are a million excuses and a million reasons why it won't work. But, but what we need to do is we need to lean into what that fear is, and we need to, with full confidence of who God is, step out in faith. And so for, for us, for you this morning, what is that going to be? Will you step back and continue to make the excuses that you've been making time and time again? Or will you step forward into that potentially fearful circumstance and live a life of faith? Will you bow your heads with me this morning? For some of you this morning, uh, as you're sitting in your seat, you've yet to actually make a commitment uh, to a relationship with Jesus. And, and you're sitting there and you're hearing all this stuff about faith and you're like, I don't even know if I believe all that. Well, here's the reality. One of the most fearful things that you can do is to enter into that relationship with him. But here's what we also know is that right here in your seat, you can uh, pray for forgiveness of your sins and be saved. And so if you want to do that this morning, if you want to step out in faith, I challenge you to do that this morning. And you can let us know by indicating that on the Connect card, or you can, again, email us. Um, for others of you, you've tackled that fear to the ground. You've, you have a relationship with Jesus, but there's something else in your life that you know that's holding you back. It's causing you fear, and you're not living by faith in full confidence of who God is. I don't know what that is. Maybe for some of you, it's sharing your faith with your neighbor. You just know it's time to do that, and you're coming up with all the excuses. Why not? Maybe for others of you, you've yet to still sign up and join a life group, even after the last four weeks of talking about that. Maybe for others, you need to serve or, or be baptized or join the church, whatever it might be. What is that fearful thing that's keeping you from stepping forward? And would you this morning put a stake in the ground and say, not anymore. Today, I'm going to do it. Today, I'm going to step out in faith, in full confidence of who God is, deepening my relationship with him, and coming to grips that this world is not my home. 
And again, if you need to respond in any way with that, you can do so on the connection card. You can come up uh, and pray with one of our members on the prayer team this morning uh, as we dismiss here in just a minute. But whatever it is, I want to challenge you this morning. Don't just hear this and, and don't just think, that was, that was a nice message. But I want you to think, what is it today that you are not stepping out in faith? Make, make a decision today to be the turning point. Pray with me. God, we, we love you and we thank you so much for the, the truth that comes from your word that we can remind ourselves of who you are, that you're totally in control, that you're faithful, that you love us, that you're personal, and God, that we can put our faith in that, that the object of our faith can be in you and not in something else that's just wishful thinking. And Lord God, I pray this morning if there are responses or steps that we need to take in this room, God, that you would grant us the courage through your Holy Spirit to step out, step through the fear, and to step into faith of what it is look like to follow you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.